Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back. I'm excited to start releasing new episodes again with the new year. My friend Devin recently asked whether I had any new year's resolutions and I gave it some thought and decided to just become worse. No good deed goes unpunished and all that shiz. So prepare for my version of the Mad King's reign of hellfire, which is really just reality. Anywho, the next two episodes feature a very special friend of mine, Sir Isaac Williams, a man I have known since high school, went to military ball with in college, who then proceeded to move to Australia and nearly vanished from this planet, mentally and symbolically. I am very grateful to have had the following conversation with him and to begin releasing content again. In my move to Atlanta, as it has been approximately a year since I released new episodes, I just did not want to put more of myself into the world when I honestly just didn't feel like I was receiving any love, understanding, or acknowledgement back. I put what little trust I continued to hold on to into the wrong people and have had to manage my expectations around what kind of honesty, integrity, and character to reasonably expect from others that make up my social community. As Taylor Swift helpfully reminded us, at the end of the day, you're on your own, kid. You always have been. And you are. Most of the time, it's up to you and you alone to have a will to continue and pull yourself out of the darkest corners of your mind or the world. You have to want to survive and you have to choose to. You can't expect anyone else to understand because there's no possible way for them to have access to all of the information and life experiences in your mind. You alone, at the end of each and every day, have to be okay with living with your choices. And if you don't like those choices, it's up to you to figure out how to change them. Isaac's episode was a continuous conversation over the course of five hours, edited down and split into two episodes for formatting purposes. Some of the production, per usual, is a bit rocky since we recorded it via FaceTime and he is based in Australia. But I hope you all will enjoy it and get something out of it. So without further ado, I'm just going to jump into it. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, I can hear you just fine. So you don't want to use a code name? Mm, no. Why not? You don't like the whole spy aspect? That's my favorite part of the show. I mean, no. I don't feel any for it, yeah. I hope you don't regret that one day. I, I hope you I got, stand I got a long list of things that I regret, so I don't think there's <laughs> one more on there will be yeah. the end of the world. A good point. Do you want to give that Cliff Notes version of how you would describe it? Yeah, show? yeah, sure. Welcome to my show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm Isaac Williams. You're my mom's favorite person, probably. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't know, but yeah, that's I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite glad to hear that. She's a nice lady. I'm sure we can talk about her later. Let's see what to say. I'm 30. I'm a, a 90s kid, 92. Born in California. Moved to Australia shortly after with my folks for a few years in the early 90s. They split up and I moved back to California with my folks. We stayed with my grandparents for a number of years. And uh, my mom remarried. We moved to Arizona. She married a military man. So we kind of bounced around the U.S. following his career. Which branch? Uh, Army. Army Ended up in Maryland, and that was kind of where I finished high school. That would have been 2010. Wow, you were only there for like a year? No, sophomore, junior, and senior year, so there for three years. I did um, freshman year in Colorado. Got accepted to college, went to New York 
the, the military academy because I went to the military ball and we're not going to undermine my achievements here. So <laughs> you went to the military academy. <laughs> I did go to the military academy. Yeah, I won't undersell it. It was a big achievement. And I left. Yeah, fuck it. We talk about that later. My dad, biological father, is Australian. So I had dual citizenship uh, in my back pocket. So I moving back home wasn't really an option. So I jumped on a plane and went to Australia with really no idea what I wanted to do. And I kind of bounced around for a little bit and then ended up getting a chefing apprenticeship. So I did that for um, like two and a half years and became a, a qualified chef and then was a chef in kind of like the fine dining cooking scene in Melbourne, Australia, which is where I've lived pretty much the entire time that I've been here, about seven years. And then really wanted to get out of the city for a while, so, and then stop cooking. There was a lot of reasons that drove me out of the kitchens. And I bought some land and started a business growing and selling local organic vegetables and free-range eggs. Uh, so I did that for four years, set the business up, and then at the end of COVID, sold that on and moved back into the suburbs of the city, which is where I am currently. So that's really me in a nutshell. Yeah, how did I do? That was good. Let's see. I have talked about you in my writing before any more reconnection, which I think is cool. Why do you think that was, by the way? I don't think we ever really had too much of a crazy connection super strong before or in our young life why, why do you think i'm somebody that you i just think that's how i interact with the world i was just talking to a friend about this i just got off the phone and this was a topic of discussion in general but i think i interacted the world in a way because of the naivety <laughs> of my upbringing in a lot of realms the idea of protecting people in the u.s typically means keeping information from them so that they can kind of grow up with rose-colored glasses in a lot of ways whether that's good or bad is very subjective i haven't personally enjoyed it myself not to say that there's not like a reason for it you know uh, and maybe that's just kind of the realities of life not everyone has to learn everything you figure out who needs to. But, you know, because of the way I was raised, I do think I approach situations with naive ingenuity. So I just am really excited to learn about people. I don't think the world has nearly enough communication. So who I am and like the way I approach the world tries to always facilitate that if you can kind of get over your pride or ego to do so. Yeah, me personally, I make really strong connections with people in a very short period of time I you know I, i'll call in and out of contact with people i move around very frequently job job place to place kind of thing and you know i don't really keep up with the people that i've made these connections with which is a problem in and of itself that i'd like to definitely get better at but what i do find myself is like constantly thinking of those people even if i you know spend just a few months or maybe a an old fucking relationship or whatever, you know, I always kind of analyze those. I feel like that's normal with the trajectory our lives have taken, just because they've both been a lot of movement, and maybe that's just kind of the realities of life in a lot of high population areas, but I obviously grew up in a small town, so I didn't know that. <laughs> um, let's jump back to the beginning. What were you like as a child? I feel like a pyro phase, a really bad one. 
I didn't actually ever burn anybody's house down, but I got really fucking close. Two separate houses, tried to light them on fire. It was full, it was full on. It was just, I don't know what the fuck I was thinking. But um, I feel bad for, you know, my mom. I had to deal with that. But, um, Damn, no wonder you went the military route. And they were like, sociopathic child, pyromaniac. Let's throw him in the U.S. military academy and use that skill for good. Well, I think my folks are pushing pretty hard to, um, yeah, let's let somebody else take over the work that they started. <laughs> Do you think all of our parents, though, kind of feel that way? Because I think more and more about the value of a community and how many mentors I've had through coaching. I played on three different sports teams a season. So every single day of the week, I was at a different sporting event, different club, had very strong and so many role models from an adult standpoint that I really respected as people, especially all of my teachers. The La Plata community was just, for me, wonderful, wonderful teachers, most of whom were women, who made me love learning, which is pretty common because a lot of teachers and people who are not necessarily in like professional settings, women are the predominant workforce in community level areas usually. I don't think our parents are supposed to have the answers. I think that's kind of what parenting is. And part of the issue I struggle with in adulthood is that my parents, we don't know how to have a healthier relationship because they don't know what they're supposed to do. Uh, nobody has the answers is the short answer, but I think you took somebody that you really, a role model that you connected with and idolized in say high school, for example, a coach or a teacher or whatever, and switched roles and they were your parents, you'd have the same fucking issues with them. Yeah. It's just, it's a different situation, right? And they have different levels of responsibility and care for you. So, so they see a much different side of you. Yeah. When you're outside of that. Also because they're responsible for you in different ways. You know, that's a very weird thing to think about. I mean, just think about how easy it is, like, when you're hanging around with uh, one of your friend's kids, and it's all fucking hunky-dory, you're like, you know, shit, I should be a fucking parent. And then imagine, there's zero responsibility there. I mean, obviously, you're worried about their safety. Oh, see? You don't have have to tell them off when they're throwing food on the wall or fucking taking a shit in their pants. You know, the parents come and, and sort that stuff out, whereas it's just different. So you can appreciate the role models that we have and the things that we take from all of these individual relationships that we have earlier on, but you gotta take it with a grain of salt. You can't look at these people mm-hmm. up on a pedestal and be like, oh fuck, they're way better than my fucking parents. It doesn't, it's just not the same really. So credit where credit is due for parenting is a tough gig. And I think the more <laughs> you delve into it, especially later on, probably the point of our life that we're getting into now, and you start thinking back to what actually went down and you look at it with a fresh set of eyes, you really start to understand the shit that they went through and I agree. That's actually why I told you that book, The Terror Courts, that I was reading, has really made me understand my dad, like my biological dad, a lot better. I think I was telling you the other day that I don't think our parents can process emotion even half as in-depth as I can because I've had years of therapy. I've had years of very heavy discussions of these topics. I've worked in like a healthcare realm where I talked about this stuff and like the statistical commonality of it on a day-to-day basis for years while they were like doing their jobs and doing their community work and you know like my mom's a teacher she does so much 
and like she was a really, really good stay-at-home mom. But I don't think that part of their brain necessarily develops. Like maybe that's what we're supposed to teach them. And I definitely haven't been a good teacher. I'm definitely like a little authoritative dictator of a teacher, just like what I'm sure was my father. <laughs> it's kind of annoying. You're the eldest. When, oh no, your brother's the eldest actually. Yeah. When did your mom have your brother? How old is she? 25 or something? Yes, roughly around there. 28, is that right? Uh, Matt's your strong suit, so we'll go with that. But 28's not bad actually. So my yeah. brother got really mad because my parents were married, but my mom made the mistake of saying my brother wasn't planned and my brother was wanted. But women's fertility is like a very, especially in a marriage, sometimes you just stop using contraceptives and see what happens. And my mom happened to get pregnant. Like that was the scenario. It's not that he wasn't wanted in any way. It's just he wasn't necessarily very thoroughly planned. And my brother got so mad about that. And it gave me insight into adoption trauma because he just couldn't grasp that she still loved him and like, it didn't change anything about her being a parent. It's just, she wasn't like, oh, this is exactly when I'm gonna get pregnant. A lot of women don't even know that. Like all my friends who have had kids, not a single damn one of them have been planned so far. Mm. I mean, I guess that probably, did he find that out at a younger age? I mean, he was definitely in like college. He was old enough where he should be more informed, but he's a guy. And in my household, my mom taught me sexuality. My dad taught my brother sexuality. My mom and my dad had very different views on sexuality and the norms for that because my mom was a farm girl with experience with animals. She literally lived on a horse breeding farm. When she grew up, they were very actively breeding Appaloosa horses which is like its own little fun topic into the history of genealogy <laughs> in the U.S. But um, yeah, like my dad was one of three boys from New York City, like the Bronx. My dad just didn't learn about sexuality in any way that my mom did. And he hit puberty really late. Sexuality to him was still very taboo, not discussed. And as parents, they weren't a team. They didn't have clarity in their approach. And it was different for like how I was raised versus my brother, which like if you're raising kids within one household, you have to balance that each kid is a different person. They're navigating life all differently. What is equality versus equity and how do you learn from kids and like actually have those discussions? Because my sister got a very different version of parents than both me and my brother got, right? Like my brother was the oldest. He definitely took like the brunt force. He went full 90s kid, punk rock, Blink-182. Like we had a little half pipe in our front yard. He went through the skateboard phase, bleached his hair, Lincoln Park, and just fully leaned into counterculture during the early 2000s and basically went head to head with my dad all the time. And then I was the perfectionist golden child eldest daughter. I got kind of that version of my parents where I was a perfectionist because I saw how much stress my brother caused. I didn't want to cause them more stress. I don't know, that side of things. And then my sister got this wonderful Goldilocks version of my parents where they had already been through one daughter. They knew how to fuck up women. They had already been through a boy. They knew how to just fuck up in general. And now they have a third chance with this baby child who is just like a wonderful social butterfly and natural mediator because she had to grow up with me and my brother. 
And my sister's relationship with my parents was very different as a result just because of that foundation. And I'm not that person, so like I don't really know how to soften that role, I guess, especially after uh, all it, these years. I guess it's three different human beings, right? So I mean, yeah. of course, each relationship is going to be different. And then obviously your parents are getting older and wiser as they went through their life. So they were at a different place for each one. And obviously it'd be stressful, more stress piling on and with the more kids you have. And I don't know. I don't, I, I'm more impressed that they didn't just fucking keep throwing the same shit at the wall. Uh, hoping that it would stick for each kid so good for them i know you got a whole long list of things that no i i'm understanding of it i love my family it's a very complicated relationship i definitely don't vocalize that enough and i think if we were looking at it objectively that would just be a common trend that my family should probably work on but it's likely related to like the military order of excellence and expectation doesn't require validation constantly my baseline is doing things right the first time as thoroughly as possible you know whether that's a dissertation online or genocide it's just both <laughs> yeah uh, i'm definitely not a perfectionist me personally i'm, I'm just happy to fuck things up straight out of the gate <laughs> and not really put too much thought into them and um just it's definitely not the best like i can see the positives for the way that you go at things but it's just not the way i work you know i'm just happy to keep charging into a into a wall over and over again until i get to the other side kind of thing so i kind of definitely more align with probably your folks and i understand that a bit maybe a bit more readily than than you would see i it's not that i'm incapable of doing that i think in certain roles when i feel like i have a support system or am protected I can be in that role. Relying on humans to be that isn't my norm. So I don't quite as much because it's me who has to pick up the pieces, you know, like that shit's not fun. I have to do that alone a lot. Even just socially from my family, I don't get that support because they're more religious. They just don't process life the way I process it. And they like have gotten increasingly religious and I'm obviously not. <laughs> so for me, I have had to figure it all out no matter what on my own and I definitely would say some people would describe some of my behavior as running headfirst into a wall on many an occasion it's just others perceptions and what that looks like to them is different from I don't know what it feels like to me especially with such a highly competitive background because I literally did run straight into kind of like a smaller wall that's what a vault is at full speed for like years <laughs> no I, I can tell i don't know the way you're like put together i don't see behind the scenes really so i know you put a lot of shit that you've I, I just for. cry a lot i just allow myself to feel emotion that's all it is behind the scenes i think the, the image that you put off is like quite well put together you're well spoken you're obviously very highly educated mm -hmm. um perfectionist uh all this shit no matter what situation that you're in you're that's always gonna like cast a light on what other people perceive as how you're handling the, the things that you're the obstacles and the adversity that you're dealing with and someone from the outside looking in especially from my perspective where i'm none of those things i really don't consider myself book smart i'm not a perfectionist for in most things in my life um but you know i've got the tenacity and the resolve to always pick myself up and just keep fucking going doesn't matter how dark it gets and so that's i think that's probably 
and that's probably why we get to the same end result and the same the thought process kind of leads to the same place even though we approach it from two totally different ways which is something that really that is something that really interests me actually is that how sidebar you know i was talking to my brother for the first time like a proper conversation congrats yeah it's crazy we don't i could probably count like the hours that we've spoken on three fingers over the last 10 years and we actually had a a good two-hour conversation and I mean, there was a lot that stood out to me, but what I really took away from it was that, like, we've had, same as you and your siblings, we had totally different upbringings. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very much black sheep. Ben was very intelligent, well ahead of his progression for where he was at any given age, and always had an idea of what he wanted to do, and I think that's very, what's the word? It, it would put a parent's mind at ease seeing their child grow up and, and being like, hey, he knows what he wants to do it's going to be, it's going to work out. And then you have me on the other side that's just lighting houses on fire and fucking <laughs> watching porn and just doing all the shit that you're not really supposed to fucking do, lying and stealing and just a total asshole. <laughs> and Which is funny that you say that because that's not the perception I had of you from track. To me, you came off very well put together. It may have been the that, uniform. I get, that a lot. I get that a lot from people is that, oh, you know, like shit, Isaac's got his stuff together. He's really, for his age, especially when I was like in my early, early 20s, everyone thought, oh, you know, he's very mature for his age and old soul. You know, I hear this shit all the time. And <laughs> the reality is that I got fuck all figured out. People just kind of judge books, you know what I'm saying? And um, I guess getting back to the conversation that I had with my brother was that, We've walked such different paths for the people on the, you know, that are listening in, like East Coast Guard, and has been forever. And I've just been a wanderer, jack of all trades, master of none. And (laughs) the conversation that we had, we had reached the same thought, the end of the thought process. Well, not the end, you're never at the end, but we'd reached the same converging point, you know? It was just so cool to sit there and have this conversation with a sibling. Was that um, converging point that you guys love and miss each other and spend a lot of time together? Wait, what? <laughs> sorry, what? Did we, did we say that we loved and miss each other? No, I didn't, I didn't say whether you said it. I don't expect you to have said it, but do you think that's what the converging point is leaning towards? Is that, you know, at the end of the day, like, you really cared about this time with this person and you have all these experiences i know that a lot of the discrepancy in my siblings relationship kind of is the communication issues around how different our experiences were i'm viewed as like ungrateful or messier for asking for different things and being a different person i think there's much more um angst because maybe that's Hmm. the wrong word in, in your sibling there's more of, I don't know, it feels like there's more tension going on. Like, my brother and I are very, very relaxed around each other. There's no animosity or anything like harbored from what happened in our childhood and the, and the different ways that we were treated. And Maybe it's because you're both boys. It could be. Um, I think we've just hit a point in our lives where we're able to look back and realize that all that shit is out of our control to a, a vast degree. Mm-hmm. And we've walked our own paths and we are our own men now and that the fact that you can (laughs) come to that realization with another human being and kind of empathize and understand what each individual has been through and where it's brought them then you can start having these actual conversations that go far beyond just the normal interactions that you have with human beings which are just shit 
to get past the... What do you mean? We've had plenty of great interactions throughout our whole time of knowing each other in real life. Beep, beep, beep. We interrupt this broadcast for a brief intermission because the phone call got cut off. Jumping right back into it. It's going to be something we got to deal with. Oh, it doesn't bother me at all. I'm not doing anything else. I just get up and usually smoke a little weed whenever you're in the Does that make the, the conversation better, does it? No, I just like smoking weed. Your joints are um, out of bone. It's just my favorite little activity. Like, I think it's fun. I'm just at home. There's no reason that it matters. Lots of people sit down and, you know, drink after a long day and nobody thinks anything of it. And we have very different perspectives on weed just because of the public policy side. Uh, Yeah, you won't get any arguments from me. I grew Uh, up on a tobacco farm, so I don't know what they expected. And then went to school for biochemistry and worked in pharmaceutical manufacturing, at which point I realized the hypocrisy and subjectivity of what we classify as bad and for what reasons and weed is a good remedy to learning all of that information and then having to function in the usa yeah (laughs) i i got no issue with with smoking weed um i do notice that it can be a little awkward to bring up boundary wise for other people my mom's not good about that because she has such strong views against it that we really just clash around that culturally in a lot of ways yeah i think it's definitely just one of them things like, like all substances really i mean i don't really consider weed a drug that's just been my view from the entire time um but i don't really smoke too much anymore just because a i've got you know issues with i don't really moderate very well yes <laughs> but i think there's something to be said about do you th- think that I do moderate well? I don't know. I don't know enough about you to... I don't know your your day-to-day routines and what you uh, partake in and how much. And I guess what I will say is that I've got, obviously, a lot of experience doing drugs. And... um, (laughs) You want to go into a little more depth on just for, like, the Cliff Notes version of that for context, really? You don't have to. I'm more than welcome to... I got no issue talking about my history, you know, and hopefully if it can help someone else along the way, that's the more the merrier. Oh, um, but yeah, I was a uh, full blown, in a nutshell, like I started out like anybody else did. I think the first thing I ever smoked was spice. That was started at West Point in like the dorm rooms when the spice craze spice? was going around and you could buy Damn. it fucking anywhere. And spice at West Point. Uh, yeah. And hmm. more towards the end when I knew that I was done there and I was just like, I'm, I'm out of here. And it was just looking for anything to escape how I felt about the fucking place. Um, but yeah, back to Cliff Notes on me, started out dabbling in recreational drugs and very quickly wound up very heavily dependent on all forms of substances. And then that progressed into a you know full-blown crystal methamphetamine addiction for and nearly three years I was using every day. And Did you watch Breaking long. Bad? Sorry? Did you watch Breaking Bad before that? No, actually, I didn't watch Breaking Bad. And then around, like, it's very, it's heyday. It's very, when it was very popular, it was just way too close to the subject mm-hmm. for me to watch it and not feel something um, very painful. So I have watched episodes since. I, it's not something that I watch religiously. 
that had nothing to do with the route that I chose. Uh, I guess that's me in a nutshell. Heavy drug user, meth addict, recovered. I think it'll be seven years um, this coming June um, that I'll have been clean and sober. Those were dark times, and I'm sure that's something that we can get into. It's obviously a big, big part of, of my life. Um, yeah, but uh, I just, congratulations on the seven years. Yeah, thanks. Very, very, very proud of that. Um, I'm definitely getting to the phase in my life where I'm ready to start helping others. I was back in the kitchens for the last few months, and I quit that job. Is that how you got into it? In culinary positions in the U.S., that's just like a very common way a lot of drug use is actively yeah. done on a daily basis. I mean, you can... It's just common. I think it's a perfect storm. Less, less so nowadays, to be honest, than when I started, when I was an apprentice, versus where it is now. It has changed a bit. And then, obviously, the decades before, 80s, 90s, 90s, they were all very drug-centric, drug-oriented. But even when I got in, it's just a, a real fast and loose environment where it is almost promoted and celebrated to be like a functioning alcoholic or a functioning addict and get absolutely fucking turned up and then the night before and then come in the next day and just do your shit and that's the way the industry is not so much anymore which is it's good but still i've been out of the kitchens for like four years and then just got back in recently and straight away, you know, there was there's a guy in every kitchen that can get you whatever you want, whenever you want. You just got to know what to look for. So it's still prevalent, um, but that probably goes with any... <laughs> I know that my dad probably said that same exact thing, but sitting in, like, a war room being a narc, you know? <laughs> and it's just really... I can just see his delivery of being like, there's a man in every kitchen. You just have to know which one to look for. Here are the clues. This is what you're telling his agents how to infiltrate these communities. Once you've dabbled in that, I think it's something that's very difficult. If you're just like a upstanding human being, obviously, if someone's like, go out and find some drugs or go out and find something, you'd struggle. But once you've dipped your toe into that pool and you've kind of gone over that side for a little bit, it just opens your eyes to what is actually going on around you. It's Mm-hmm. It's one of the big reasons for decriminalizing and basically having state-created substances because then you can kind of track and monitor use and purchases a little bit better with more clarity. You're less likely to have introduction of different molecules or like versions of basically their like, chemical synthesis that goes slightly yeah. awry. Maybe we're a few degrees too hot, so you have a different chemical. It's like all the nuances of biochemistry. Mm. And that is what makes a lot of drug trafficking so dangerous to people. And one of the huge public health side of the arguments for why they should all be decriminalized and addiction should be viewed so differently and treated so differently from a societal standpoint, rather than like yeah, punished. It definitely should be. I think there's a long road to getting there, but probably conversations like this and um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think there's a lot of work that can be done in a community social setting that need to happen. It's not something that's going to be solved from the top down because by the time they start uh, implementing, this goes for everything that's fucked up about the way of the world that we live in. By the time these people start making policy, it's too late by that point. They're not doing things that are directed at helping the individuals you know it's just setting up a system for failure well it's like setting up a system to manage people 
which is what administration and bureaucracy is. I've really been contemplating it, especially when you look at psychologically, humans are animals. We know that just from a scientific standpoint. We can literally compare our DNA. And because of that, we have tons of studies, both from like a sociology side of other human populations or micro groups of people. And then across the animal species that if a human is basically in some kind of confinement, they are going to try and escape. <laughs> Whether that is a marriage, <laughs> whether that is a country, whether that is social norms, the human as like a persona just will question and search for answers um, in some way, shape or form. Curiosity is just what drives a lot of behavior, whether it's like learned curiosity in a positive way where you're more curious or you learn to avoid because you're less. You know, and you're like blocking it out. Like it's all some spectrum of curiosity. Yeah, I don't think there's any argument to the fact that a lot of this stuff, I would say 99% of these detrimental behaviors, I'm talking mm -hmm. drug use, alcoholism, prostitution, it all starts at a young age mm -hmm. in these children's homes. And I get into this, I think I've sent you a couple links for it. I just watch them on YouTube, but it's called yeah. Soft White Underbelly. And he has a studio on Skid Row, and he interviews mm -hmm. people of, of all walks of lives, pimps, prostitutes, drug addicts, escorts. He'll just give them a few bucks. They come in, they do an interview, and he then can, like, crowdfund mm -hmm. um, and get them help if it's rehab. Or, or He's doing an amazing job. But I think what you understand by watching these things, and I've got a very interesting perspective because I've gone through it myself without ever feeling like I had the story that these people had that drove me down the path because these are extreme cases. You've got parents that split up at a very early age or one parent died and it was like a single mother turning tricks to raise her offspring or drug addicts or gang members raising and it's just like their destiny is already set and you can, I guess I had my eyes really start to be opened when I started watching these things and questioning my own path that brought me to my own struggles with addiction. Mm -hmm. um, and once you go down that rabbit hole, it's a very painful place to be. It's a very dark place to be, but that's where you have to go to get these answers that ultimately allow you to live a, a sane lifestyle. You can become a healthier individual. So you just got to Mm -hmm. If you want to get into, you know, my journey with drugs and where it all started and how that all progressed, definitely more than happy to. And you can just, obviously, you'll have to keep me from rambling because I'm going to ramble a lot. But hey, hey, this audience listens to me ramble for literally hours at a time. So you're good. You can ramble as much as you want. Yeah. I'm sure there are probably somewhere, tons of people probably out there like, thank fuck it's not her talking. <laughs> probably, yeah. All 10 viewers that we have. Uh, excuse me. I'm on several international databases of people to be concerned about and watch. So at least several AI systems are filtering through me in addition to those people. All right. Well, let's, I was trying to think where it all really fucking started, to be honest. I guess when I first got into the kitchens over here, I was in a new country. I just left a very strict and regimented lifestyle. That was really all that I ever knew. I had a very clean and dry upbringing. I wasn't drinking from a young age. I wasn't sneaking ciggies. I wasn't <laughs> exposed to really anything that would have made 
somebody think, oh, this kid's going to have a, a problem down the road. Um, but as soon as I got over and things were... Meanwhile, like yeah. the rest of the world is like, you were a military brat. We all knew that you were going to have problems down the road. <laughs> Probably. I was very immature mentally, as we all are at a young age. But you know, I was very... Um, mentally and physically. I was just young. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was very, like, susceptible. I really hate using the term addictive personality. I don't think that's a thing. I think it's a... I don't use it for myself, at least. I think it's a cop-out. I would agree, uh, personally. But I was very persuadable to, hey, you want to do something? Yeah, let's fucking do it, man. You want another one? Let's have another one, you know? And there was no... Mm. There was never any moderation. There was never any internal or external force saying you need to stop. I carried with me for a very <laughs> long time. And I got and it got me in some really sticky situations. So you, you know, I got are, into it. You Sorry. are the baby. You're the baby. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So were you like kind of used to? I mean, I know you were used to following orders because of your parents, but like, were you used to following orders in like, a social scenario, friend group, and stuff wise as well? No, no. I think I was. The, I was always actually more of the probably like the leader. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and. Were you a track captain? I was, yeah. Which, yeah, once we start talking about track, I was very fortunate to have that experience. But getting back to... Sorry. I got into the kitchens, started hanging out with my kind of friend group, and smoke a joint after work every day on the way to the train station with a couple of guys, and that was great. And then, you know, a joint after work turned into... I started... Uh, there was another apprentice where I was working, and he sold weed at the time. You know, and I'd buy, like, a gram off him a week. It was fuck all and a gram quickly turned into quarters and, and half ounces and before i knew it i was rolling up in the morning and smoking up on my lunch break and having two or three joints at night and then going out with friends and just getting crazy and just ripping huge fucking gravity bombs and just getting fucked up man and uh it was a great life weed is one of those things that it makes social settings seth rogan says it in pineapple express like the best you know it's like it makes sex better it makes fucking it makes everything better man and that's just what weed was for me it was like a, a social lubricant in a new country and it was very acceptable in the circles that I was running in and it was it wasn't just hey let's have a conversation it was let's smoke up and, and have a conversation kind of thing so that was mm -hmm. really where I started leaning heavily on uh -huh. something to do to put myself in a different frame of mind and then next time I went to buy weed off of this guy he was like oh hey I'm selling pills now and that was really the beginning of the end mm -hmm. um uh, that was the beginning of a very long period of darkness in my own life. You know, I would have been 21, and I think I bought maybe like two pills off this guy. Had no idea what to do with him. I wasn't doing much clubbing. I wasn't really into the nightlife, even though I was right in the heart of Melbourne. I can't really uh, picture you in being into nightlife, to be honest. Oh, uh, well, we'll get there. <laughs> um, and I remember the first time I ever took a pill, I finished work. And I had like a 45-minute train ride home. Just for my and naivety, do I assume this is opioids? No, nah, it's MD. MDMA. Oh, okay. Um, and I just said, fuck it. I dropped one uh, on the way to the train station and just sat on a train for an hour and came up on this fucking pill. And it was one of the like greatest experiences of my life, really. It was just so joyful and i think everybody remembers the first time they take md if they've taken it and i'm not putting 
drugs on a pedestal or <laughs> promoting their use. But those first times you take kind of like these psychoactive substances that you tweak the serotonin and the dopamine reactors, you know, you're in for a you're in for a ride. It was awesome. And because I wasn't going out, and I think that's a lot of that's the environment where a lot of people will take a pill, right? You go to a festival or a rave or you go clubbing, you know, you have a few drinks, you take a pill, you have a good night and that's it. Because I didn't have that in my life, right? I was just doing like normal work, taking pills on trains, taking pills at work and went from one pill every couple days to very quickly you know i'd have a bag of pills i would just pop them like fucking tic tacs double dropping before dinner service and fucking cooking high as fuck (laughs) and i very clearly remember getting locked in the cool room at work and tripping balls and someone came in and i was like stroking the fucking brie cheese and it was like i was like man it's so soft bro it's so soft i was fucked up man <laughs> i was i was really fucked I, up. I was, when you said you were stroking i definitely didn't think you were gonna follow that with brie cheese is all i'm saying <laughs> i wasn't like into any fucking sexual shit dude so yeah it just got to this point where i was taking probably like five six seven pills an afternoon then i started going out and clubbing and partying um and it just turned into this very vicious cycle of alcohol and pills. I was working with a guy at the time that I really respected, very, very good chef, um, learned a lot from him. And he left the restaurant that I was working at and went, got a head chef gig at another place. And the kitchen that I was in just turned to shit without him. And so I said, I'd love to come and work with you. You know, we worked that out. And it was right around that time that my stepdad, the man who raised me, passed away very, very suddenly. And I flew home to bury him. Mm-hmm. And Just... when I came back... Are you allowed in the United States legally? Yeah, I got two passports. So I got, I mean, I got U.S. and Australia. Well, I didn't know if because you had left West Point, if there was like debt or something that basically made you an alien. Yeah. No, nothing like that. I'm, I'm all good. Congrats. I wasn't sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I'm all, I'm all good. I, like I would an call IRS it my father. Agent, uh, you know, he raised me since I was eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a very, like, strained relationship. But anyways, he passed away very suddenly, and that left, that just, like, really shattered my, it just brought a lot of things into question for a very young, susceptible mind that I had at the time. And then... What year was that? 2013 or 14? January of 14? Mm-hmm. I got back to Australia after his funeral and it was just, <clears throat> I wasn't in the best of places mm-hmm. and I started working with this new head chef and unbeknownst to me, he was very heavily using crystal meth and we went over to his place one day after work and, you know, a pipe was getting passed around and I had no idea what to do with it as you wouldn't on your first time and took a hit off of it and the rest was kind of sealed at that point. It got, you know, really fucking dark, really fucking fast. Um, And you were dealing with all that grief? Yeah, it was compounded very heavily by the fact that Jeff passed away and then his dad passed away like a month later from Mm -hmm. brain cancer. Mm -hmm. And then uh, my grandmother in Australia, um, who was a woman that like I hadn't seen for 18 years and then came back over and I had lost Jeff and his 
father. And I was just starting to feel that inkling of I just lost like a big chunk of my family. Like I want to connect with somebody else that's in my family. And I used grandmother became that person, beautiful woman in her own right and very caring woman. And I was like trying to jam in all of this lost time with her. And she died probably four or five months after Jeff passed away again, very suddenly, you know, there was just three people that I cared very much about in like a six month period that it just fried my fucking brain, which is already like drug addled and young and didn't have the tools to deal with this shit. So I just really dived into using to cope with that and to just, I remember at the time I was just using it to like blur things out. And One thing I noticed since I wrote the episode on addiction is that if I talk about it, people assume it's basically because I'm at the worst stages or going through it myself or something like that. And they change the way they interact with me because of it, which has given me very interesting insight to the way a lot of humans interact differently with people through various stages and basically whole social support. You know, like whether it's for their own boundaries or their own needs. But the majority of the time, I just, I look back and I'm like, wow, so many people basically were afraid to talk to me and afraid to just ask me questions. The relationships that I do best with are people who aren't. (laughs) Um, And I don't know, even when I just like wrote about it in in January, I had a lot of people who assumed that I was really, really struggling with it to like the extent that you were. But what they did was stop talking to me as much, not see me, not actually ask me what I'm doing or interacting with me. It basically was fully pulling that net back, which was a weird, like we're at a weird stage in life where we need to talk about these things, but talking about these things often changes the way people interact or like perceive you, which is hard and a reality of being human, but also not an end goal for understanding. I get why people learn to be silent. I think there's a lot of people out there that haven't dealt with or come to terms with some of the things that other people have gone through and they don't know how to react to what other people are coming forwards and and coming out and telling them. And, you know, you would think that, hey, I'm being honest with you. Like we're having, I'm letting you know things that have happened in my life and how it's affected me. You would think, oh, that's going to make us, that's going to pull us closer together. But, you know, in in some cases, it it actually kind of does the opposite because if somebody hasn't gone through something that somebody else has gone through or had a life-altering experience, which let's be honest, a lot of people haven't had, I think they have a very sheltered view on on how to have that interaction with others. I think something on the other side of the coin Mm -hmm. is that you need to remember that not all things that happen to us are perceived on the same spectrum by individuals. I consider myself very fortunate and gone through the shit that I went through and I get it out of the way to some extent and come through the other side. And I carry it very close to my heart and it, it hurt me a lot at the time. But somebody might have gone through something that I view as not so severe, that you might view as not so severe. And you kind of just brush it off as, well, fuck, I've been through worse, so kind of pull your finger out kind of thing. But the effect that it had on them, you know, maybe it was just somebody not close to them passed away or they got really fucking scared at some point because something happened and they felt that like awakening. 
awakening within themselves. Like, I think it's something that I've learned going through my own experience is that you need to be very careful about how you judge what people have been through Mm -hmm. because what is a 10 on my spectrum might be a fucking three on somebody else's spectrum. And what is a three on my spectrum could be a fucking eight or a nine or a 10 on somebody else's. You just need to be like very empathetic and understanding. Read the situation and listen to people because I think that is how you truly connect with people and kind of going back to what you're saying about how people don't sometimes they pull away when you start disclosing this information be quite confronting and quite scary you know to other people that haven't had that life experience but I think at the same time you need to understand that they have probably had that life experience but they just don't they haven't learned how to fucking deal with it yet right yeah it's all fear-based for sure but that's what's kind of hard to mitigate because every scenario that it's come up I had a friend who started seeing this guy whose brother committed suicide a long time ago or not that long ago like fairly recently the guy's been clean for like one year or something and I met him and we were just talking like you and I would talk and his brother came up so I asked him questions and she in the aftermath oh he handled those questions so well and I was like well yeah if he doesn't want to talk about his brother he can let me know but he brought it up and I'm just conversing with him like I would any normal person but I noticed in that moment that her natural reaction is to protect and withhold information and basically change the way that she talked like babying them when you look at how often Often that happens, especially with people in those scenarios. I just think a lot of addiction is essentially routed in the lack of direct communication with everybody in their lives at every point. Yeah, I think that's a good kind of segue into the more what I would consider the more beautiful recovery process that I had. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, I got to a point where everyone just stopped supporting me. Essentially, not on any fault of anybody else's. I would never blame. I put a lot of people in a in a lot of really shitty situations. I just got to a point where I had a couple run-ins, very close run-ins with the law over here. And I got to a point where it was really starting to get really fucking scary for me. I was at a fucking crossroads and I was like, I really need to get some help. But obviously hitting that point and stopping using are two different things. Yeah. And I remember this is all science-based, but I guess I'll back up a second. I was at a point where I was like, I really want to have my quote unquote rock bottom experience. And that was what I felt like I needed to hit so that I could start moving upwards. I hate that Uh, mentality. Ugh. Well, it's it just so like so much. I feel like other people look at it as like, oh, they need to hit rock bottom first, and it's it's semantics. When I was at hearing stories from other people, other addicts, and the shit they would call their rock bottom, it's just that point that you hit that you awaken that inner fucking human inside of you. You're so far removed from your own humanity when you're doing these things. I think it sounds kind of crazy to say that, but you've got zero. Um, there's no concern for lying, stealing, hurting other people. You don't care. You really don't care. And that is what I think most people realize when they do something so bad that they wake up and they say, holy shit, like I got to change. That's probably what I would consider rock bottom. It's got a bad connotation. I agree with you. Mm -hmm. But I guess what I was looking for was that spark within me to be like, hey, Zach, you need to fucking, you need to start fighting, man. You're at the end of your rope. I had that. I was at the end of... It was really bad by that point. I was going on like two, two and a half week benders and not sleeping, not eating for a really long period of time. And then you just fucking crash afterwards and this like week long, brutal fucking come down. It's horrible, man. And 
I was at the end of one of these benders and I could not feel like any emotion and it really fucking scared me and it's probably just like scientific like my brain was entirely zapped out of dopamine and serotonin and all the shit that made you feel Do you ever like watch The Vampire Diaries? What's that? Do you ever watch The Vampire Diaries? I think I watched like maybe one season. They, a long time ago. They have a really good parallel for how to describe that state of mind. And in the show, the vampires can like flip their humanity switch. And that is represented. It's a parallel for substance use or like mental health struggles in general. But when they flip it off, they just move into their pure vampire being a predator. Um, and it's a really, really good analogy to like explain it in a media context, like non-human elements to make it a little easier to digest. I think so. Yeah, it was it was terrifying. I'll tell you what. I was in this place for like a week and every day I was just more and more scared that I'd done something to myself that this is how the rest of my life was going to be. And I'm talking like, Aww. you couldn't get angry. You couldn't, nothing made you happy. Food didn't taste good. The world was just gray. You know, and it was fucking horrifying. Depression. And very shortly after that, I got, I started going to Narcotics Anonymous meetings and mm-hmm. really starting my own path. How did you get connected recovery. to this? Like, what made you start the NA meetings? I, it was just, I hit a point where I didn't want to do what I was doing anymore. It was it's just really as simple as that. Um, How did you, like, find out about them, though? Or, like, know where they were? You just look them up online. You Googled rehab had like a really scary stigma to it. It was like, I don't want to go to fucking rehab. I don't want to see a counselor. I don't want to, you know, I was young. I didn't, I was scared. You know, I wanted to do this in a way that I felt like was on my own terms. And these meetings were what felt most comfortable to me. And I didn't know what I was getting into when I went to my first one. You know, I was like, I'm just going to, I would just get high and go to the meetings at the start. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I would sit in the back and just listen to what these people were saying. And, you know, these were people that had been, it was just ranged from people that had been clean for 40 years to people that were still using, like myself. It was a real mixed bag, but, you know, the commonality was that everybody was there to Be get better. better. Yeah. Just like and just the feeling of relief and that it's going to be okay and that there's more than, because you're so isolated when you're going through this shit and it's just i'm the only one out there i'm i'm pushing shit uphill constantly and then you walk into a room of 40 other people 50 other people that are going through the same thing or that are more down the road have a bit more wisdom that you can start to be like there's a way out of this you know there's a light at the end of the tunnel and that was the only thing that i did to get myself clean it wasn't an easy process i could have made it a lot easier on myself but i just went and listened and then got to a point where i felt comfortable raising my hand and, and speaking and i was able to put the shit down and and clean my life up and i'm not saying it's been that stuff haunts you for a long long time there's a lot of stuff that you have to you know unpack and that you carry with you for a long period of time afterwards and i've had to deal with that and still am dealing with that but there was progress made there was recovery made and that was all you need when you're in that situation like that you just need a fucking rope you need somebody to throw you i remember the most powerful thing that anybody did for me was i had somebody 
not close to me at all, but had been through a very similar experience with uh, meth addiction and a very similar path to my own. I was messaging him around the time that I was knowing that I needed help. And I was asking him questions. Hey, Matt, how do I quit? Can I can I use every now and then and still do the quitting process? I'm really half-assing it. And he was just like, look, man, I'm not going to give you any answers because you're not at a point that you're ready to take in that information. But I just want you to know that mm-hmm. I love you and that there's people out there that love you and it's going to be all right. And just to hear that was a big turning point for my recovery. It was just, it's just kindness and understanding. And that's, I think, one of the big lessons that I've taken away from this whole thing. You see people that are struggling in all walks of life from all different types of issues. I'm talking every issue, carry our own burdens. And just the simple couple words of kindness that you can give somebody and understanding and pull yourself out of your own non-important day-to-day bullshit and just be like, hey, dude, I feel you. It's going to be all right. There's people out there that love you. And if you need anything, I'm here for you. That is more important than anything else that person is going to hear all day. And so I think it's just something to... So my issue with the lack of direct communication, and I realize that it's basically people trying to be nice, right? Like when you love somebody, you basically ignore your own boundaries or don't speak up. You think that is what love is. You think that's being helpful. That's how they need you. And that's probably not how they need you. That's probably how you've adapted. But unless they specify that that's how they need you, a lot of times people just gravitate towards discomfort and ignorance of their own boundaries because of their fears. With my mom, she just stopped having conversations with me basically because she probably assumed the worst and thought I was like up there taking all like these pain meds and stuff all day. And like in reality, I just switched to sleeping during the day so that I could have alone time at night (laughs) when I was living with and had she just had a conversation with me about it we probably wouldn't have had a lot of issues in our personal life in general again that's like a really complicated one I know, but don't you, you know, I mean, there, don't you think people stop telling you about whether or if they even care about you? They literally stop telling you (laughs) basically because their own boundaries were disregarded without you being aware of it at all. I just feel like a lot of drug addiction comes down to feeling like a burden, whether it's in your own life, whether it's on others' lives, like societally, that's a big reason why we should have social safety nets, just so we literally create this idea that your value does not always have to be tied to productivity so there's no like shame when you need to rest you don't have to prove your worth to exist that's very ableist in my opinion a lot of these situations seem like other people accommodate or soften or stop talking about these things because they one don't think it'll go over well which really in my argumentative style to me more so means that they're not getting this perfect way to approach those discussions because they don't know how you need the words or what words you might think would lead to that and so instead they're tiptoeing around they're changing you can like intuitively sense it but you're still functioning as you i just don't think people can be responsible and aware of what they don't know and so much is basically not said out of comfort it goes goes both ways you can say that you're in this example that you gave your mom wasn't she needed to reach out and have that conversation i think at the same time you probably weren't giving her too much either right and that you could have reached out and said, yeah. I'm fucked up, like, you know, I, I need a helping hand. And maybe that conversation would have gone, I was the same way. Like I was, I had people calling me concerned, family members calling me, and I would just be like, 
nah, it's all good. Or, you know, if I was in a really bad way, you know, I would just tell him to fuck off. And I closed myself out in that situation, you know? So I think it's definitely, it's a two-way street. I think it's really difficult for people to walk that line. I understand there's a whole bunch of things that they can be uncomfortable with, and they've got their own fucking issues that predetermine the type of conversation that they can actually give you. And that's difficult in and of itself. But like I said, it's a two-way street. You can't be upset at somebody. But my thing is, I didn't feel like I needed a conversation with them. I didn't always feel like there was a problem. It resembles to me in my scenario because it was one, just weed related. And like two, very, very small amounts of that, especially at the time. And I just, it's like micromanagement of a human. I basically had not lived with my mom in a long time, had become a different person in that time function differently in my daily life like I'm very much a homebody I essentially lived by myself for two years so like I've been used to not having anybody in my house which is really hard to adjust back towards even talking daily or I don't know basic things to me like I like to plan yeah, I understand. I've, I've been in a similar situation, yeah. <laughs> so I, I get where you're coming from, yeah. Um, it was just, like, really conflicting for them, essentially, because they took everything, like, I was being purposefully rude or, like, entitled or something like that because my mom would rely on her support system and go sit there and talk to her sister or my sister or everyone else about it. And then, because she had vented, she didn't need to talk to me about it. But because they all knew only my mom's side, which is very, very skewed and based on very outdated cultural norms or awareness of even medicine, mental health, chemistry, everything. That's not the way I approach life. But they started interacting with me differently because of that shit. And I look at it and I'm just like, that absolutely happens in probably every single family and is probably a huge contributing issue to how addictions spiral. That just, I don't know. It's like what Encanto tried to get at with the self-fulfilling prophecies things. Like then you start going to look for problems. So you're looking for cues that confirm your suspicions, which again, if you have been through, you might be aware of. There are usually warning signs, but why don't you just talk about those to the person? Why don't you say, hey, I, I noticed this. I'm a little concerned because I'm scared because I because I love you because I care about you I don't want to see you go down this road that's not what happens they're afraid and they react with anger <laughs> what you're saying isn't wrong but and I'm not at this point in my own journey either but I think there has to be at some point our own it's so easy again I know I've said this but it's so easy to have a a preconceived notion in your own mind of what help you want from others and what they need to do when you're in a situation to help you out and what maybe they should have done. And people are obviously dealing with shit as well. And I guess mm-hmm. I can't really, I just think the next level of, of evolution for my own mind, the next step that I need to take is that I would like to get to a level where, imagine if you can rise above this shit that we're talking about, it's just like a higher level of understanding. And I guess I'll, I'll give you the this example that from when I was speaking to my brother the other day that really fucking blew my mind and I've been thinking about it kind of nonstop since we had this conversation. I just love uh, that. I really love that you talked to him. Who called who? He called me. I was blown away. The first thing I picked up the phone, I was like, who died? I was like, what the fuck's going on, man? And um, he's like, no, I just want to talk to you. I was like, fuck. He wasn't drunk, nothing. It was a great conversation. Anyways, mm-hmm. at the time, 
I've been having some issues with the way that me and my mom had been communicating and we'd kind of come said some hurtful things to each other and things that I wasn't proud of and we hadn't spoken since and that was weighing quite heavily on my mind. Um, so you were not proud of it, but you didn't just tell her that? Um, in subsequent conversations, mm -hmm. I told her that. But at the time, it's just kind of my personality sometimes. I just kind Pride. of load on people and it's something that I'm working on. Pride is working. a little bit. All right. So anyways, I was talking with Ben and we both have a kind of similar relationship with our mother and the fact that she's very intelligent and she sees a lot of things um, when we have conversations with her and probably in other people's lives as well. But the way that she gets what she deems as helpful information across to that individual it can be very cutting and very, very hurtful, uh, even though she's right. But it's very, very hard take that shit on board when it's delivered in such a way yeah, and I need to be better so I pretty much told her to fuck off and hung up the phone which I was really not I've never spoken to her like that and I was very ashamed of that and I hadn't spoken to her for it had been probably a month and you know me and Ben started having this conversation I was saying this stuff to him I was like look man like she's fucking off the rails sometimes he was like look man I'll tell you a fucking story and you can kind of do with it what you want. And so he told me the story of when some of my folks, my mother and then my Australian biological father, like I said earlier, they split up real early and we moved out of Australia. But she was in an abusive relationship and she had two young boys, very young, in a new country. She moved to Australia, no family around her, and we were very, very poor. And I do remember some things about it, um, but Ben has a much better recollection because he's a bit older. And I won't get into too many of the details, but just suffice it to say it was a really unhealthy relationship. And she had gotten herself to a point where they had gone through with the divorce and she was looking to leave the country with Ben and myself and take us back to the United States. And Ben recalled they were fighting over custody. Mm -hmm. And Ben remembers a day that we were staying with my biological father. And it was his turn that week. And he took us to a lawyer's office. And we were there all day. And he set up a temporary hold on my brother's passport that did not allow him to leave the country and didn't tell anybody about it. So my mother had just like i said she was dirt poor and she had to beg borrow and fucking steal the thousands of dollars it took to get the money for these plane tickets to get back home this was not an easy not an easy task for her and we packed up all our belongings and went to melbourne airport and got through security and we're at the final checkpoint and they security pulled us aside and said there is a hold on ben's passport that Miles has put on there. And you have a choice now. You can leave the country and take Isaac with you and leave Ben behind, or you can turn around and go back into the situation that you were in. And she took us and took us back to the house that we were in. She obviously wasn't gonna leave one of her children behind. And in the upcoming days, Miles, my father, brought a, she was at work, we were at school. He brought a, he was a very, very spiteful man he brought around a moving truck and his friends and he took all of the appliances out of the house and all of our possessions and sold them and we were living we were cooking food off of a fucking camp stove like a single burner camp stove and all our food was like stored in an esky uh that's what we call like a cooler over here you know like a camping cooler sleeping on the ground 
Like, we had fucking nothing, dude. And just her life is full of stories like that. She has been through with different men and her family. She's been fucked over very badly. And just the emotional damage that has put her where she is, it's just not fair for any human to have to go through that, let alone a mother trying to bring two boys through that as well. And I think she can be cut a lot of fucking slack in the conversations that we have in the way that I view her. Having that information and the the pain that she's been through, and then I can be like, I can empathize with a little bit, the fraction of, of what she's gone through that I felt myself, right? and then be like and know how i feel and then when i have a conversation with her i I guess that's get it coming full circle is what i'm saying is like there needs to be a higher level of understanding that we none of us have gotten this far on this journey unscathed and Mm -hmm. we're all fucking hurt and we all have dealt with some seriously fucked up shit and that needs to be somewhere in your mind when you're having these difficult conversations with people or expecting something from somebody else that they can't fucking give you because they were never given that right, right? and they don't so know that's, that's, an so that's just what i'm what i would like to that's what i'm working on that's what i'm trying to remember is that you can get caught up in all that shit and it fucking hurts and, and it only breeds more pain it doesn't need to be fucking talked about and it doesn't need to be solved there just needs to be like a moment if it's verbalized or unverbalized where you're like hey i know you've been hurt and they go hey i know you've been hurt let's fucking move on from there and let's not let's make something better that's what we focusing on it's funny that you brought it up about just your reflection on like your mom and stuff through understanding because that's also begrudgingly what i have taken that approach to both of my parents My dad is the oldest of three brothers and his dad was a New York City police officer and a German immigrant prior to Hitler's reign in World War II coming into New York City. My grandpa was a terrifying man at 6'4 and 200 plus pounds. He was a big dude. When he died in Florida, we were glad that because of the DNR, he basically starved to death over two weeks. Instead of my grandma having to take care of him in a demented state just because he might kill her. That's the type of mentality you do have to factor into what it means to be human. For our parents, they didn't grow up with the internet. They learned what it meant to be human only from their social and different environments, basically. They didn't have anywhere near the communication. They didn't. I remind myself that a lot of how they respond to me is fear based, even in what I want to do, right? Like the positions that I take on a social media platform that gets distributed globally is the same stance essentially that great leaders have been gunned down by fanatics for of several progressive movements especially within the usa that's just historically part of the reality and i remind myself that some of their concerns are fear-based just like addictions my dad's response reading that book and understanding his work environment in the Department of Defense and like what it means to work within that realm, what it means to make those choices, where your version of safety is, what that means for them and for men in general, right? You're supposed to be able to essentially be emotionally vulnerable at home. But what does that mean when I am very emotionally expressive and I need to rein that in because it can be intimidating to people in a lot of regards, almost to a fault? I don't realize I'm intimidating. Like I have had to remind myself of that. But for men, every time they're emotionally expressive like that, 
I'm sure my dad was just reacting. But for me, it was really scary. He looked like a monster to me based on height difference, age, power, dynamics like that. And when I step back and look at, I don't know, the grander scheme and what his role was in those positions, I just, I just understand. Um, I'm a farm girl. Being human to me means being an animal and that's not really as perfectly pleasant as we make it seem like the default is. And to me, that's also your test in character. When things are going well, don't tell me a damn thing about you. I don't give a fuck about like meeting those people. I don't think that tells you anything. Like spending a ton of time with people in those environments doesn't tell me anything about them. The real life for me has always been, I don't know, just like the more intense shit. I just think that's kind of what it actually means to live with humans. Maybe that's just like a, some kind of like maternal motherly outlook on it. Like maybe that's why your mom has essentially had a gradual scale of circumstances that she's learning from and she's like changing slow variables, but... It's also kind of based on the way the world interacts with her. It's not like a super kind and gentle place. No, it's not. I like what you said. I kind of operate in the same in the same way. You know, I don't. Um, I've never kind of basked or lazed around in the nicer, finer moments of my life. I've always chosen to. They don't mean much to me. Nothing physical things or short victories, even big victories, they're not important to me. You know, what I've always chosen to spend my own thought, mental time is in the darkness. And it comes at a cost. It really does. Probably end up in the situation that we're in where maybe you feel like you're a bit more, I'll use the word enlightened. You understand more things because you're spending time thinking about the times of your life that critical things happened and usually went wrong and there's powerful lessons to be learned there on the flip side of the coin i think it makes you much more difficult to interact with and for other people to understand it's not really a normal friendly healthy thing to spend time thinking about that shit yeah and which to me is kind of weird because i don't know working in healthcare and public health realms and then thinking about public policy or any kind of law that's almost all you get all the time. So for me, that's my yeah. norm. <laughs> Can't you see somebody? I mean, I understand been, what through. I can easily see people's mentality having been through a bunch of shit. And I've been there before where you're just like, hey, one more day. Let's get, let's get to the next thing. Let's move forward. We're not, look, everybody is taught that. Don't look back. Keep pushing forwards because there's going to be some better on the horizon, right? So you just never deal with all that shit. I have probably missed out on opportunities that I could have maybe relationships or job opportunities or friendships or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, personal joy, personal satisfaction. I've probably missed out on a lot of that because I've chosen to stay in the past a lot and deal with that shit because I just have this thing. It's just the way that I deal with issues in my life i cannot move on until i've made sense of what's happened and i know it's a bad thing at times but it's also a really good thing i can see the upside i can see the downside and i'm i'm happy for that but what i also need to understand is that somebody who doesn't want to look back and just wants to keep moving forward you got to respect that as well yeah but those people totally different fucking people my issue with that though is you can't outrun your trauma at some point, that shit catches up to you. So sure. that's fine if sure. you are they one both, of those they people. They both come with a cost. That's what, I'm, yeah. that's what I'm trying to say, right? Yeah. And you can't convince somebody to stop and deal with the shit and let it all catch up with them because that's not fair to them. And I think maybe sometimes that's something that you can be guilty of. 
right? You can hold it. It seems like sometimes you can hold it against people for being like, hey, I know this works for me. You can't fucking outrun all this shit. So you've got to stop and deal with it. And then Mm -hmm. you let that affect the relationship that you have with that person. My issue also is that I am at a point in my life and I just, I feel like it's way too old already to have to tiptoe around everything in life in general. That's just not who I am. I'm tired of basically having to apologize for being who I am when almost every single one of these qualities would be a good thing if I was a guy. It wouldn't even be an issue. It would just be fine. Do you feel like you get bogged down in this whole... It's just annoying because I like I have to be responsible. all the time, man. I'm just... I'm not, I, don't ever, I don't have an issue with it. It's I know there's a, there's a clear, there is a disparity. Because people interact with you differently and don't expect you to be softer for them, to be that nicer role or something. I'm in a weird crossroads where I do have this education, but I'm not my friend's therapist. I understand that sometimes they approach me thinking I'll have the right answers and exactly like what they want to hear. And a lot of times I'll ask questions and basically make them kind of confront something a lot of them choose to run from, which is fine. But my boundaries as a friend doesn't mean that my life has to be imploded because of that. And I definitely struggle with one, figuring out how to meet people where they're at in life and how to figure that out without being inherently judgmental and a negative stance. And then also how to maintain my own boundaries and my own sense of peace while being there for them in the ways that they either expect or need. And that's just tricky because I think a lot of people just expect a lot of me just in general, because that's, I don't know, like what I've always been, who who I am in general. Like I try and help out. I do a lot of acts of service for people I love, but not a lot of people do a lot for me, but I don't ask, but I don't always know that I can. It does sound like you're at a crossroads, to be honest. I'm probably at a different crossroads, but a similar (laughs) one. In your particular case, you got to make a decision. Yeah, but I stopped stopped writing. Being who you want to be comes at a cost. I know. Well, that's why I stopped writing for a little bit, because I had some discussions with my mentors where they were like, I want you to really sit and think about what you want your role to be in the world. Because I kind of jumped into the entertainment side a little naively, which are you ever actually that well prepared, you know, until you go through things? I don't know. But then I learned more about the social justice side and our history of very clear opposition to social progressive movements and historically and globally what that means. And it's a lot scarier. I really sat with the time to think about why I want to do these things and for what purpose and what's the end goal. And I just, I think ultimately at the end, my end goal is understanding whether that's myself, whether it's other people better, whether it's the community and the world that I interact with. But I just, I don't know, people use art for all different reasons. This might be a weird form of art for people to consider, but that's how I view it. And it's my way to express that and share that with the world. And I I don't know, like I understand it's difficult for my family and I do respect those aspects. I try and factor in what considerations I need to but at the same time i just i don't know this is your form of art and moving yourself forward as an individual (laughs) also i think a little bit and figuring you're using it as like your platform to figure your own shit out to some extent i think you need to really like remove the aspect of giving a fuck about what anybody else thinks about it It doesn't matter if they're your family or it's not it's not the it's not the right place to be harboring those feelings it's your place to be progressing 
as your own human being. That's a beautiful thing. I think you're getting bogged down a lot by a lot of the strings that you feel like are attached to it when they're not attached to it. They're only attached to it because you're listening to the outside noise a little bit. Yeah, but when it is people's opinions or in the context of my family, it's stuff that might not be relevant to their life now. They, a lot of people do think that you should be able to have very different private and public lives. That's not how I've tended to operate ever or exist. So I I don't know. I don't know that. That's also not my problem, uh, which comes off kind of bitchy. But I, I struggle balancing being like respectful and not essentially wanting to make it so that I can have no relationship with them with the necessity that at the end of the day, even if it does hurt their feelings, sometimes that doesn't matter. Sometimes I can still make those choices and be that person and have learned these things and just think, I don't know, like the end goal I just noticed because of all the communities I've been in that this shit happens in every single one. People will learn through like observational things. I like providing that template for other people to learn from my mistakes collaboratively and just bring back what it means to be human into real life, which is usually messy. And it's not this PR perfect narrative. Mm. I think the heart of what you want to do sounds like quite a great thing. So I don't feel like you need to worry too much about it's not like you're doing something malevolently or trying to do something out of spite or you're saying things to cut like you're being a good fucking person you're on a journey to understand and help and that's what you need to remember at times like this like how important is that to you versus what is the kickback i'm going to get from xyz and that's also i explained that to my sister recently look i get that you have had a significant other and somebody to rely on emotionally i've had my work i've had health care I've had science realms. That's what I've gotten pride for and achievement out of. Feel like an innate sense of belonging and purpose to overall. And it's just, that's my world. It doesn't have to be yours, but it is mine. And I, I don't know, you know, you see a need for it. I didn't want to be disgruntled my whole life and just wish that I could have said all these things and then just didn't. And this allows me to do it in a way that can be received at your own pace privately. You might never want to listen to it. That's totally fine. But it's there in case you want to understand, work towards it. Yeah. And that just feels like a good boundary for me. There's nothing wrong with what you're doing. And I don't think you think that there's anything wrong with what you're doing. You're just... I don't, but I think they want me to. You're clearly unhappy with some of the side effects of what you're doing. and I guess I'm just tired of being called insane. That's all it is. I'm really tired of being called insane. But then I looked up the history of psychiatry and how the profession has been used specifically to label women and anyone going against social norms. And it, again, education is power, so... It's been helpful. I mean, if you want to equate what you're doing to (laughs) other women pioneers that have come before you, they didn't have it fucking easy, dude. Yeah. The Rosa Parkses and women that stood up for themselves, they got shit on. You seem to be fully going into this eyes wide open, but also unhappy with the fact that you're getting shit on. So, (laughs) where, what what, what the fuck do you want to do? Sometimes (laughs) you told me that. You thought I was really special, and I don't hear that a lot. People don't tell me that. 
fucking boo hoo. I know, but, but like sometimes, sometimes you do have to mitigate. Like, oh, okay, like, it's really annoying that I'm hearing all of this negative feedback. Every once in a while, I would like a positive one, which is probably the reality of the world. And it's not like, a bad thing. It's just every so often, I like to recalibrate and really sit through and think through my decisions. And when I got to Atlanta, I was just okay. Like, I want to sit through and learn a bit more about what it would mean to be in this position and really feel knowledgeable and ready to take that on. That was more so the dilemma. It relates to my family because it could potentially put them in some version of harm's way in a lot of ways, which is just the nature. But that said, obviously we have a lot of public differences um, and they don't ideologically align with me on our their own completely different people. So at the same time, I don't know. The world's a scary think, place. I think it sounds like there's like a... There's just too much knowledge of the government side. There's too much knowledge of... A lot of people jump into situations thinking about everything that could go right. That is not me. I... I have approached every situation when I think of the choice, assuming and learning about the worst and choosing to feel prepared to go into that. What does that mean? I don't know. That's just who I am to my core. It's an explorer. I'm like seven generations of military, you know? Like, that's just me. <laughs> yeah. I, like, grew up exploring on my horse for hours through all of the forests. That's just who I've always been. And exploring the mind and exploring humanity is helpful to me for understanding the world and making sense of it and wanting to actually live in it. For me, it's important. Do you think what you're sometimes feeling is that it sucks being alone? Yes. And you're very alone in the type of individual that you are and the, the path that you're on. You got friends. You like to say that, you know, you got this core group that... But they don't understand. Yeah, but it's also more annoying because the men interact with me now or have basically because they, they see my potential. They think I am fully capable of achieving everything I want in life and they just want to be tied to it, which is very fascinatingly retrospective of, I don't know, the historic cleat chasing narrative for trophy wives. It's hard to move through life and understand people's intentions and taking on that role will just make it a lot more difficult. But that said, I did shadow a judge in South Georgia who disclosed that through his like 31 year career, he has learned to factor in basically who is speaking to him, what insight they might have that their version of the truth is just their version of the truth. It's not a version of the truth. It's not the only one. It's just like their version. You factor that in, they can still express that however they want. But when we approach situations in real life, a lot of people don't think about that questioning or factor that in when people are telling stories. It just comes up a lot. Like for me, in a lot of my writing, I factor in other perspectives. I give speculations towards what might be relevant. I try and think of unknown variables, basically, because I'm a scientist. I was trained to think like that. But a lot of people aren't trained to think like that. It's not like a deficit for me. It can be in a lot of social relationships, but I don't struggle in my social relationships with my other STEM friends. And I don't struggle with like, the reception of my blog from my friends who like, spend a lot of time talking to me in real life. Yeah, but that's not the people that you care about how they make you feel, dude. So why are you even celebrating? It's great, well, it's, of course. It's the people not that really are how they are make going me... to understand what you're saying and they're going to relate and they're going to be proud of what you're doing. But you don't, that's not the section of society that you're worried about. So. That's a good point about how they make me feel. Can we break for five? I gotta go check on my dog. Yeah, we can break for five. Let me, let me know.
This marks the end of episode one. I'm going to post episode two immediately after I post episode one, so feel free to just continue to listen.